The first topic that we shall talk about starting at 7.30 a.m. is about targeted um, cancer treatment and we shall focus on um, on what's being done in Northern Ireland in that respect. And um, from about 8.15 a.m. onwards, we shall talk about um, care and should being in care actually be a protected characteristic. So those are the two topics of the morning. Do join us in both of these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And with that, let me welcome my co-host for the show today, which will last until 9am. Imam Usman Manan, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Wa alaikum salam. Peace be on you all. How are you today? Yes, very well. Um, the weather is um, has been nice. So, yeah, it's uh, it, the forecast is very nice for today. So, it's all good. Good start, yeah. How was your weekend? Uh, weekend was good. It was very quiet. Um, just went to my parents. Excellent. All right. Good. Sometimes we, we all need to have uh, those quiet weekends as well. Right. Let me start off the show with um, the uh, headlines appearing in uh, the newspapers this morning. So, Dr. Strikes leads some of Monday's front pages, including The Times. The paper reports that Health Secretary Steve Barclay says he's willing to offer doctors a bigger pay rise while calling for an end to consultant strikes so that negotiations can resume. Mr. Barclay is also described as, as, as swerving questions on how the government's £2.4 billion new NHS workforce plan would actually be paid for. The Daily Express writes that striking hospital doctors are threatening more walkouts that would continue until 2025 unless demands for a 35% wage increase are met. The paper writes that the British Medical Association has said there will be no let-up in industrial action past the general election if that is what it takes. The Chancellor is deeply concerned that banks are closing accounts because they disagree with customers' opinions, writes the Daily Telegraph. Banks are told by the Treasury that they must protest, must protect free speech, the paper, the paper writes. The Daily Mail leads on the government's plan to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. The paper writes that manufacturers and industry leaders are calling on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to rethink the timescale or risk ruinous economic consequences. The Ashes dominates the front page of the Metro with the headline, Just Not Cricket. The paper leads with a story on how some members of the Marylebone Cricket Club angrily confronted Australian players in Lord's Cricket Ground um, as they walked past them. The scenes unfolded after England batsman Johnny Bastro was controversially given out during play earlier in the day. The Financial Times front page leads with a story on how the bond fund manager Pimco has warned that markets are too optimistic about central banks' ability to dodge recession as they battle inflation in the US and Europe. The company's chief investment officer, Daniel Ivesovich, has said he is preparing for a harder landing than other investors, the paper writes. 
As usual, the Daily Star is out of this world. The lead story is on China's lunar ambitions. The paper writes that the country is plotting to mine the moon in a bid to create cosmic nuclear weapons in a warning from a boffin at the UK's Space Command. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Once again, a reminder of the the two topics that we shall uh, talk about. The first topic, starting at 7.30 a.m., is about cancer treatment and targeted cancer treatment in Northern Ireland. And the second topic, which we shall start at 8.15 a.m., is about care. And what we shall um, talk about would be um, should targeted, uh, should um, being in care be a projected characteristic. So those are the two topics. Please do join in both of these discussions. The number to call in is 020-867-7878. We shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue with the news items um, and new stories appearing in the newspapers this morning. And we shall carry that until 7.30. Please do stay tuned. Allah has decreed most surely I will prevail I and my messengers Verily, Allah is powerful, mighty. The Arabic expression Al-Aziz means the mighty, one who is dominant but cannot be dominated, one who is powerful and superior over all else. Al-Aziz is that striking being who alone has the power to bestow prophethood upon man and to guide mankind towards righteousness. It is this eminent attribute of Allah that has allowed great prophets of the past to succeed in their respective missions. The chief of all prophets, the holy prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was undoubtedly the most cherished recipient of God's limitless favors. At the dawn of the victory of Mecca, the Muslims marched wholeheartedly. After being betrayed by their treaty-bound brothers, this was a day where the inhabitants of Mecca witnessed God's might. The reign of cruelty, which had caused the followers of Islam unimaginable agony, was brought to an abrupt end. The peaceful conquest of Mecca was made possible only through God and His might. Allah's might is widely experienced by all prophets of this world. The promised Messiah on whom be peace came at a time when people had become void of morality and were ruled by Mulvis and extremists who no one dared to oppose. The promised Messiah on whom be peace expressed 
that at the time of his claim, not many believed in him. In fact, he faced an onslaught of ignorance, hatred, and ridicule. The promised Messiah on whom be peace faced numerous fatwas and false court cases were made against him. In these moments, it seemed almost impossible that the promised Messiah on whom be peace and his godly mission would prevail. But it was the might, Al-Aziz, that silenced the jesters, created love where there had been hatred, and brought justice in times of unfairness. Al-Aziz stood like a mountain safeguarding the promised Messiah on whom be peace from all forms of harm. This was the might of the powerful God that enabled his devout servant to reign over his opponents and to once again radiate the ever-bright light of Islam upon the darkened world. Al-Aziz is the great altruistic God whose power is dominant over all others. His might is a magnificent sign of the truth of his prophets and their prevalence is evidence of his existence. This world would not be as it is without the mighty Creator. It has been written and proven time and time again that He will prevail. How then can one deny His flourishing superiority? Assalamu uh, Welcome back to The Breakfast Show. We are starting our new segment. And uh, to start right off, we have a news from France uh, where the riots have been going on since um, last Tuesday. Um, Nahil, a young boy, 17 years old, who was shot point blank by police after failing to stop for a traffic check last Tuesday, uh, has the, was the cause of these riots uh, where people are complaining and um, writing that the police uh, shot them due to racist um, intentions and uh, um, the family of Nahil has spoken out and what they say is that we never called for hate or riots. Um, France has seen five days of violent rioting but the unrest ebbed again on Sunday night with 78 arrests reported by the early hours of Monday morning, uh, 20 of them in the Paris suburbs. Uh, speaking to the BBC near the family home in Nanterre, the relative said to rioting, uh, which has seen thousands arrested, shops looted and hundreds of vehicles set alight across France, did not honour Nahal's memory. We didn't ask to break or steal. All of this is not for Nahal. <clears throat> they said they had called for a white march in the street, walking in memory of Nahal, walking, even being angry in the street, demonstrating, but without outbursts. And the relative said French authorities must now change the law that allows police officers to shoot during traffic stops. Um, this is also very interesting that I think in 2016, uh, one of the police officers was um, attacked and brutally injured and burned. Uh, and after that, the police protested uh, to the government that they should... Uh, 
they should give them more leeway when it comes to using their firearms the, 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 and shootings and stuff. And uh, after that, uh, the, the shootings have increased. Uh, last year, there was about 13 people who were, who were killed in this way uh, in, in a traffic stop. Um, but I think we can find the middle ground where guns and uh, firearms are still allowed, but shootings on traffic stops, they should be stopped. And this is also what, what the family of Nahil is um, trying to uh, get to the government. And uh, even in the video which, which was re released in, on social media, you can see that the police officer shot Nahil while he was driving off. And uh, it doesn't seem uh, after that there's no urgency. He shot him and just walks away. It's not like he's trying to chase him. So there's a, there's a very um, unfortunate... And the police officer has been arrested and is charged with uh, homicide murder and investigations are still going on. Right. Um, I want to talk about something from the world of sport. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we've um, uh, we've seen a bit of um, uh, anger actually uh, being thrown at uh, the Australian players um, after the second Ashes cricket match uh, at Lords yesterday. So the furious England coach Brendan McCullum has um, questioned the visitors, uh, that is Australia's uh, sportsmanship over Johnny Bastrow stumping on the final day of the second test at Lords. England were um, 193 for 5 and chasing a mammoth target of 371 when Australian wicketkeeper Alex Carey underarmed the ball at the stumps after Bairstow left his crease at the end of an over. The dismissal triggered long and loud booing from the Lord's crowd and saw Australian players being verbally abused by MCC members in the stadium's usually stayed long room. England eventually lost uh, the match by 43 runs to trail 2-0 in the five-test Asher series and Brendan McCullum, their coach, made it clear that stumping had strained relations. I can't imagine we'll be having um, uh, any discussions with them uh, or any socializing with them anytime soon. We have three tests to land some blows and try to win the Ashes. That is where our focus will be. The spirit of the game was vital, he said. In the end, you've got to live with the decisions you make, and that's life, he said. But I feel, from our point of view, if we were in the same situation, we might have made a different decision. McCullum's comments triggered scorn in Australia, where media noted that former New Zealand captain once stumped Mattia Murali Theron in a 2006 test in Christchurch when the Sri Lankan left his crease to congratulate his teammate for bringing up a century. McCullum also rolled down the stumps to, roll out, uh, to run out Paul Collingwood at the 2009 um, Champions Trophy match when the England batsman wandered out of his crease, though New Zealand captain Daniel Vittori then called back Collingwood. No sneakiness, disgruntled uh, MCC members verbally abused Australia Australian players as they walked through the pavilion at the lunch interval, prompting opener Usman Khwaja to remonstrate with several of them. Some of the stuff that was coming out of the members' mouths was really disappointing and I was, wasn't just going to stand by and cop it. That was uh, Usman Khwaja who was talking to Australian media. Australian team management asked the MCC to investigate, saying some players had been physically contacted by spectators in the members' area. The MCC later said it had suspended, suspended three members. Emotions were running high and words were unfortunately exchanged 
by a small number of members, it said. Australian captain Pat Cummins defended his team of Bairstow's dismissal. I thought it was fair. You see, Bairstow would do it all the time. He did it on day one to David Warner. He did it in 2019 to Steve Smith, comments told reporters. It is really common thing for keepers to do it if they see a batter keep leaving their crease. Gary, full credit to him. He saw the opportunity, rolled it at the stumps. Johnny left his crease. You leave the rest to the umpires. It was all one motion. There was no pause or sneakiness about it. England captain Ben Stroke was keen to move on from the incident. He added he would not want to win it win in such a fashion at the end of an over. The first thing that needs to be said is, is it is out, he said. If I was a feeling, feeling captain, I would have put a lot more pressure on the umpires to ask them what their decision was around the over and around the spirit of the game and would I want to potentially win a game with something like that happening? And it would be no. That was England. England's uh, captain Ben Stokes. So that is an incident which has actually um, caused quite a bit of controversy, um, as you just heard, between uh, the uh, Australian players as well as English press, as well Australian press as well as uh, English press. In other headlines, uh, today's Guardian uh, talks about that um, three Palestinians, at least three Palestinians, have been killed as Israeli forces join um, as Israeli forces strike the city of Jenin. So this is um, a story, as I mentioned, uh, carried by The Guardian this morning. And according to the story, uh, Israeli forces raided the West Bank city of Jenin on Saturday on, on Sunday night, reportedly carrying out an air-based strike and setting off a gun battle that lasted into Monday morning and killed at least three Palestinians. The Israeli military said its forces struck a building that served as a command center for fighters from the Janine brigades in what it described as an extensive counterterrorism effort in West Bank. With the sounds of gunfire and explosive heard across the city, hours of the strike and, and drones clearly audible overhead, the Janine brigades, a unit made up of different militant groups based in the city's large refugee camp, said it was engaging the Israeli forces. What is going on in the refugee camp is real war, said a Palestinian ambulance driver. Khalid Al-Ahmad. There were strikes from the sky targeting the camp. Every time we drive in around five to seven ambulances and we come back full with injured people, at least six drones could be seen circling over the city. But the military declined to specify whether Monday's operations included a drone strike, which had not been seen in the West Bank for more than 15 years until the strike last month killed three militant gunmen near Janine. Some residents said the attacks involved a missile fired from the air. However, the apparent scale of the raid underlined the importance of Janine in the violence that has surged across the occupied West Bank for more than a year. Hundreds of armed fighters from a militant group, including Hamas, Islamic Jihad and Fateh, are based in the refugee camp, which has been hit by a series of major raids by Israeli forces since the start of the year. Right, and with that, we bring uh, to close this segment on current affairs. We shall now take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about targeted cancer treatment in Northern Ireland. Please do stay tuned.
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh with peace and blessings of allah be upon you welcome back to this live edition of the breakfast show from southland studios of voice of islam we're about to delve in the first topic which is about targeted cancer treatment in northern ireland so in this segment we will uh, talk about cancer treatment used um in northern ireland where stereotactic radiotherapy has been used. So, um, specialist radiotherapy equipment known as stereotactic radiotherapy at the Northern Ireland Cancer Centre has increased chances of curing cancer in certain parents, patients, including um, those uh, being treated at this care centre, according to Professor Gary Hanna, the Clinical Director of Oncology. This... Um, uh, particular uh, cancer treatment therapy or radiotherapy, uh, also known as SABR, which stands for stereoactic um, radiotherapy, allows for more precise targeted uh, targeting of tumors compared to conventional radiotherapy, delivering higher doses of radiation to the cancer whilst minimizing damage to nearby health tissue. This has resulted in an improved control rate for early stage lung cancer, increasing it from 50% with standard radiotherapy to 85%. SABR is particularly beneficial for patients with localized and secondary tumors, including those with lung cancer who are unable to undergo surgery. Um, We will talk about the positive experience uh, of some patients whose cancer actually had spread to their lungs due to heart complications. Um, They couldn't have surgery, making SABR a suitable non invasive treatment option. The SABR equipment has seen an increase in usage at the cancer center with a projected number of almost 400 patients treated by it um, in in 2020 with a projected number of almost 400 patients to be treated until December 2023. Treatment plans are personalized and designed by a team of medical professionals with the aid of four-dimensional CT scans to ensure precision. The SABR treatment is delivered in a radiotherapy bunker with a focus on patient safety. Um, The patient, um, uh, many patients have expressed their gratitude for the treatment, which gave them peace of mind and improved their quality of life as well. So cancer research in the UK um, is progressing and encompassing a wide range of areas from understanding the biology of cancer to developing new treatments and prevention strategies. Major research institutions and organizations such as Cancer Research UK play a significant part in funding and conducting cancer research in the country. Let's now go live to our first guest uh, uh, for this segment, who is Professor Richard Simcock, who's been a consultant clinical oncologist at the Sussex uh, Cancer Centre since 2004. Previously, he'd worked at the Sydney Cancer Centre in Australia, and before that, he'd completed five years of postgraduate specialist training in oncology in London and the Southeast, including Guy's and St. Thomas. 
Good morning. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you very, very much, Professor. So tell us a little bit about um, this very targeted radiotherapy. So stereotactic radiosurgery and stereotactic radiotherapy is using uh, advances in computerized technology and hardware to allow us to deliver very focused beams of radiotherapy to cancer that was previously inaccessible. And that allows us to do two things. It allows us to give a higher dose than we'd previously been able to do and to do it more safely with less damage to surrounding structures. We've been using radiotherapy to treat cancer for over 100 years and uh, after surgery, it's the most important uh, treatment we have for curing cancers. But these technologies allow us to use it with much greater precision and with greater safety. And that's starting to make a really important difference in cancers that would previously be very difficult to operate on, particularly, for example, in the brain and in the lung. Right. And is this centre in Northern Ireland the only one in the UK at the moment using this technology? I'm very pleased to say that it isn't. Um, Hmm. Up until 2021, about half of the UK centres were able to offer some form of stereotactic radiosurgery. And then in 2021, the government announced that they would expand funding so that more centres would uh, be able to offer uh, stereotactic radiosurgery. And the intention is that in the coming years, all radiotherapy centres will be able to offer this technology. It does require specialist expertise and it does require specialist staff. It's not just a matter of having the fancy equipment and tools. And one of the things that we're really struggling with in the NHS right now is workforce. So uh, it doesn't require just an investment in hardware, it requires an investment in people. And that's why at Macmillan Cancer Support, we're campaigning with the government to increase uh, cancer workforce. Sure, I'll come to that uh, and your great work at the Macmillan Cancer Support in a minute. Uh, but just to understand this technology a little more, so traditional radiotherapy is, you know, you target a particular area, uh, for example, the prostate or, or lung or wherever, and uh, you burn those cells. So how is this different from that? So the principle, you're absolutely correct, the principle is the same, that radiation damages cancer cells more than it damages normal cells, and that di- we exploit that difference so that you can damage cancer cells uh, to a greater degree and allow the cells to repair. The problem has always been what you might call the collateral damage, that the radiotherapy has to get to where it needs to be, and in doing that, it passes through normal tissues and it may damage the surrounding cells. So, for example, in the prostate, you've got the rectum and the bladder nearby, and um, people who have radiotherapy might experience problems from the radiation in those areas. In the lung, uh, you don't want to damage surrounding normal lung and make a person's breathing worse. So stereotactic radiosurgery uses a number of techniques to minimize the amount of radiation that's delivered elsewhere. First and foremost, that's computerized technology, which allows us to do an enormous number of calculations that allow us to predict what the effect of that radiotherapy would be. Radiation is really advanced physics, and advanced physics and applied mathematics go together very well. And it's the advances in computer processor power that have really allowed us to do those calculations. The second is in imaging technology, our ability to see where the tumor is in great detail using Mm. technologies like CT scanning and MRI scanning. Mm. And then the third technology is allowing us to track the tumor in real time. So the, the example that you gave in Northern Ireland, the patient would have a small probe on their chest Mm. A computer would monitor the position of their breathing. So as they breathe, the tumour in their lung moves with the lungs, but the machinery is able to track that 
uh, and uh, if you like chase the tumor through the chest as the person breathes so that it minimizes the amount of normal lung that's irradiated and these technologies allow us to get more dose to the tumor and most importantly much lower doses to the surrounding tissues right one of the issues with um, radiotherapy traditionally has been that uh, you know while, while it uh, can actively target the the tumor if the cancer cells had have spread outside the the tumor area into other cells in the sur- surrounding cells that obviously wouldn't be um, uh, radiotherapy wouldn't cater for that so this uh, this particular enhanced imaging technology that you're talking about it, is is that able to also track uh, if the um, uh, presence of cancer cell, cancer cells outside the tumor area so we always add you're absolutely correct and we always add a safety margin to our treatments to account for cells that might just be at the edges of the tumor that we can actually see tumor te- uh, imaging technologies allow us to better identify patients whose tumors may have already spread because if the tumor has already spread no amount of radiation given to mm. one part of the tumor won't get rid of it so uh, identifying patients with cancer spread is important you make a really important point about early detection of cancer mm. so that if we can do better at finding cancer sooner there's a better chance that that cancer will just be in one place and then we have a better chance of curing a patient so if we really want to make a difference to cancer survival rates in this country the, the most useful thing we could do is diagnose cancer sooner so that spread that you talked about hasn't actually taken place awesome Thank you, Professor. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, uh, Macmillan and how does uh, Macmillan support people with cancer? What, what kind of work do you do? So Macmillan uh, wants uh, to do everything it can to support people with cancer and we do that in a number of ways. We raise a huge amount of money from the general public to which we're very grateful and we use that money uh, to su- uh, in cancer support uh, in support and information lines we have three confidential phone lines open seven days a week, eight till eight, and you can answer, you can ask those support lines any question about cancer, big or small. Uh, those services are available with interpreters, so if English is not your first language, we're uh, able to make interpreters available, mm-hmm. and we give advice on the diagnosis and can- uh, diagnosis and treatments of cancers for people who are worried about cancer, people who are facing treatment and want to understand it better. Increasingly, and I suppose sadly, over the last few years, we've had to do a lot more in terms of financial advice. Uh, the cost of living with cancer is high. Mm-hmm. The cost of living crisis, Macmillan do a lot in terms of financial guidance, uh, welfare rights advice, and we also give direct grants to people who are in financial difficulty during cancer treatment. In the last few years, we've had a lot of uh, calls to our line about energy advice, for example, as people go through treatment. We have telephone buddies, we have face-to-face advice, which are available uh, in the community. So we've trained, for example, a, a large number of Boots pharmacists to give support to people. And we have information and support centres in the community. And then perhaps one of the things that we're best known for is our support for cancer staff. So we help the NHS invest in new staffing and particularly new ways of working. So in 2021, we funded over 350 new roles within the NHS to support people with cancer. And then finally, we uh, are involved in policy and advocacy, trying to hold uh, our leaders to account to give better treatment for cancer. And the best example of that later, lately is our What Are We Waiting For campaign, where we're uh, pushing policymakers to acknowledge that uh, 
100, extra 180,000 people have waited too long for cancer tests and treatment over the last decade, and uh, we want to do, make sure that our policymakers do better in that area. Mm-hmm, interesting. And do you think any of these can help uh, prevent cancer at all, or is cancer something which is just it's just inbuilt, like some people have it, some don't? So cancer prevention is a really important, uh, as I said before, if we could get cancer earlier, we'd make a big difference. But even better than catching it earlier would be to prevent it in the first place. And you're right that not all cancers are preventable and you could live the most healthy life possible and still sadly Mm -hmm. get some forms of cancer. But we estimate we could reduce the, the rates of cancer by around 40% if we could move to healthy prevention strategies and healthy prevention strategies involve in having a healthy weight, eating healthily, uh, and not smoking. And that's within all of our power to live a healthier life. And if we did that, then some cancers, but not all, could be avoided. Professor, when we talk about eating healthy, um, what sort of advice do you, um, or are you able to offer? Um, I was reading an article uh, only a couple of days ago that uh, WHO is about to uh, list aspartame, which is an ingredient used in sweeteners and even in um, uh, in, in many diet, um, uh, in Diet Coke or diet, uh, uh, other diet uh, drinks. Um, and, and that uh, is, is supposed to be carcinogenic, uh, according to them. So is, is yeah. that something that uh, you guys uh, talk about as well in well, terms gets, of prevention? It gets really confusing and really scary sometimes, doesn't it, when you read the newspaper and it seems like everything we might enjoy in life is suddenly now a carcinogen. So um, I think <laughs> what's most important is to keep things simple. And simple is about maintaining a healthy weight, uh, so not being overweight. And when we talk about eating and drinking healthily, we're talking about eating a diet that's rich in fruit and vegetables, that has a moderate amount of animal fat in it. You don't have to be a vegetarian to be truly healthy, but a moderate amount of animal fat. And then, of course, not smoking and not drinking alcohol. And these are, these are the simple rules without complicating it uh, to live a healthier life and have a lower chance of cancer. Um, there is a long list of potential carcinogens, mm. but fresh, fresh fruit and vegetable avoids almost all of them. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about uh, stereotactic radiotherapy and uh, stereotactic radiosurgery. Are these the same same things? It's confusing, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and I think a lot of doctors get confused about that too. <laughs> Typically, stereotactic radiosurgery has been used for radiotherapy techniques uh, when we're treating lesions in the brain. And stereotactic radiotherapy is any other part of the body. And, Uh, We've been using highly focused radiotherapy for brain lesions for many decades. There's been a technology called the Gamma Knife that's been available for many, many decades now. And those techniques are pretty well established. Um, The brain has the advantage that nothing moves inside it because it's held tightly in a a big hard box in your skull. Um, Whereas uh, the techniques to treat things like tumors in the lung that move with breathing are a little bit more difficult. So stereotactic radiosurgery usually for the brain lesions, stereotactic radiotherapy for lesions elsewhere, but uh, they are very similar in what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you know about those machines where you lay down and it's used for cancer treatment. Uh, does that work in a similar way to um, to this uh, new research? Yeah, so 
Yes, so the the machines you're talking about are called linear accelerators. Mm -hmm. Um, They're machines that generate a huge electrical charge, which then is used to generate a a beam of radiotherapy. And they are, if you like, the workhorse of modern radiotherapy. Every cancer center in the UK that delivers radiotherapy will have a linear accelerator. Uh, You can deliver stereotactic radiosurgery with a dedicated machine. So there are some uh, machines called CyberKnife machines, which are have a robotic arm that can point in any direction. But it is quite possible to buy the equipment that you fit to a linear accelerator uh, to make it capable of stereotactic radiosurgery. So a bit like taking your car to the garage and getting a new appliance fitted to it to make it work faster and uh, quicker. You can take your old kit to deliver Mm. these new modern therapies. And that's what many of the centers in the UK are doing to make themselves able to deliver this technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, how is chemotherapy different from it? So chemotherapy is a treatment that is used in almost every cancer. Um, these are drugs that are given systemically. So by d- taking a tablet or an injection, the treatment reaches every part of the body. And we talked a moment ago about sometimes the reason cancer f- treatment fails, you deliver a very high dose of radiation to the lung tumor But if cells have gone outside of that area, you're not going to get it with the radiation. So sometimes using it in combination with whole body drug treatments, you hopefully reach the cells that are outside of the radiotherapy beam. And in lung cancer, we now have a new sort of systemic therapy called immunotherapy, which harnesses the body's own immune system. It activates the body's immune system to uh, attack cancer cells. And we've seen some really exciting developments in the treatment of lung cancer and also other tumors like uh, some gynecological cancers and melanoma Mm -hmm. skin cancers by the use of immunotherapy uh, to attack these cells. And researchers are now trying to work out what is the best way to combine radiotherapy with immunotherapy to give patients a better chance of cure. So how close, Professor, are we to 100% success rate in treatment of cancer? Oh, not as close as I think any of us would want. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some cancers. There are some cancers where we are getting closer. Right. There was some amazing news published just this month. The British Medical Journal looked at the outcomes for half a million women with breast cancer treated from 1993 uh, until five years ago, and showed that in 1993 there was a 14% chance that you would die of breast cancer five years after diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that figure is now down to 5%. Mm. So uh, a really huge improvement over the last 30 years. There are some cancers where that progress is much slower. For example, pancreas cancer, uh, some forms of brain tumor. And uh, perhaps the best chance we have of making advances in those areas are by finding cancer sooner. And there are some exciting developments there. Uh, your listeners may have heard of a, a trial that's going on in the UK called the Gallery Study, mm-hmm. which is looking at a new technology of finding the tiniest, earliest DNA changes, genetic changes of cancer in a person's blood test before they even know that they might have any symptoms. Mm-hmm. And if that trial proves successful, we might do very much better at detecting cancer at the earliest stages, and that, that'll get us closer to that 100%. That is indeed exciting. And on that exciting note, thank you very much, Professor. It was um, really enlightening. 
Really appreciate and and um, uh, good luck with all the great work that you're doing at Macmillan Cancer Support. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much for joining. Have a lovely day. Peace be with you. So that was uh, Professor Professor Richard Simcock, who is uh, Chief Medical Officer um, and has been a consultant clinical oncologist at the Sussex Cancer Centre since 2004. Um, very exciting developments uh, there and um, very exciting um, um, treatment option this particular uh, therapy uh, provides. Um, we shall now take a quick break and when we come back, we will talk about uh, how important research is within Islam and how important the uh, what is the important of pursuit uh, importance of pursuit of knowledge and research in Islam this is something that um, Islam often gets criticized upon so um, we shall talk a little bit about that after the short break <laughs> Azrat Mirza Majroor Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the Holy Founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, continues the work of the Holy Founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Love for all, hatred for none. Those words from your third Khalifa are more important, more crucial, more essential today than they have ever been. And of course, the Ahmadi have always practiced this peace-loving philosophy. I am gladdened and inspired by the fact that the Ahmadis not only preach a message of love, friendship and understanding, but practice it fully in the way you include and invite others to share your gathering. An injunction to love all and to hate none is the avowed guiding principle of the Ahmadi life. I would thank you also that you have stressed uh, the importance of showing that Islam is the religion of peace, not the religion of hate, uh, as it was stated on the wall in the Yalsa, love for all, hatred for none. I think that is the message that the world really needs. You understand at a profound level that promoting religious freedom is an essential building block for peace and stability here and throughout the world. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. Love for all, hatred for none, is the message that we see in this mosque and from the Amadea Association. Your people have been the leaders in taking the peace movement that one step further. The huge respect we have, we all have, 
for your work day by day in making a reality of peace and brotherhood across the communities in this country and across the world. I think the words that you said uh, to my colleagues in the House of Commons ring probably a little truer, but hopefully a little more hopefully than they did when you actually said it in the House a few weeks ago. His Holiness began his address by speaking of the great conflicts that divide the world today. Wars have been fought in different parts of the world. He worried of even greater problems. He then went on and said, It is my fear that in my view of the direction in which things are moving today, the political and economic dynamics of the countries of the world may lead to world war. Therefore, it is the duty of the superpowers to sit down and find a solution to save humanity from the brink of disaster. They were words, Your Holiness, I think, they were taken very seriously by all who were there at that meeting. Wherever the movement has been established, it endeavors to exert a constructive influence of Islam through social projects, educational institutes, health services, Islamic publications, and the construction of mosques. These endeavors continue, despite the bitter persecution that the community suffers in some countries. We need all the goodness we can find in today's world. And I applaud you for your contribution in Britain and worldwide to community cohesion and the enjoyment of diversity that is such a precious asset. And wherever Ahmadis live in the world, you are renowned for enthusiastically participating in the larger community and peacefully living, living alongside people of all faiths, languages, and cultures. I would like to pay an additional tribute to the work being done by Ahmadis in raising standards in Africa and particularly in education. Yes, Britain has welcomed the headquarters of the Ahmadis in this country, but it hasn't become something that's become, as it were, a closed sect in Britain. It's become a community that has sought to reach out to all of us, and that's very important because the best way to break down the barriers of misunderstanding and prejudice is for that contact to happen, and I thank you for that. The Ahmadiyya community contribute hugely to interfaith forums, to the richness of our community, and that is the same that's reflected across our nation. But what I would like to pay tribute to you as well this evening is the contribution that you make to wider society, the important charitable causes that you support not just for your own communities, but for the wider communities. And that is to be acclaimed and that is to be applauded. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this uh, live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We're talking this morning about cancer research and uh, in this particular segment, which will continue after the news break, um, which is um, now coming close at, at about eight o'clock, uh, about Islam's contribution to uh, to knowledge, to learning, the importance of education in Islam. So this is something which, um, unfortunately, Islam is um, uh, is criticised a lot, and um, and as we will show, this is a lazy stereotype. Uh, Imam Swamiran, what is the importance of knowledge and education in Islam, in an Islamic society? It's a very, very important thing. It's actually part of your faith. 
and uh, it's uh, just as many obligations is one of the obligations you have to fulfill um being a muslim um in islam places a high emphasis on seeking knowledge and encourages muslims to explore the world around them research is seen as a means to acquire knowledge and understanding uh, islam recognizes the intellect and reasoning as gifts of from uh, allah the almighty and encourages muslims to use these faculties to explore and comprehend the natural and spiritual realms i mean everyone must have thought uh, about wh- why are you living what was the purpose of my life or um what's the reason that i'm born and then at the at the end of my life you die and then after that what happens so all these things are also part of knowledge and uh, that's why islam says they contemplate about the surroundings think and uh, watch what happens around you look at the trees uh, they start from a small seed uh, they start growing and then they become taller and taller and then they bear fruits then the fruits um are eaten and the fruits have seeds in them and the seed is sown again and another tree is grown and allah ta'ala in, in in the holy quran mentions that look at the example of these things i mean he can't tell us um something we don't know about i mean if if i say uh, what if if i say look at a circle and you've never seen a circle or the shape of a circle you you don't know what i'm talking about so that's why god almighty has given us examples um with trees and mountains that look at the mountains such a huge pile of rock where does this come from and the the water i mean there's so much water on on earth but only 3% is that we can drink as drinkable without that 3% i mean life could not exist there would be no humans so god told, tells us to look around these things and contemplate that why are we here and to understand these things you have to um increase your knowledge and uh your understanding of things um doing research like with this um cancer research which has been done it obviously started from a very um a small age a uh, few people who were, um went to school they increased their knowledge they uh, they had an interest in these things and then after that they uh researched more they start going to into cancer research and then they found out this um this this new research which came out so without this uh, slowly and uh, this gradual uh, increase in knowledge um nothing can be achieved so that's why wherever we are whether young or old or wherever whatever age we are even if you have completed education um education never stops you're seeking knowledge never stops whatever field you go in even if you like a your bus driver you, you constantly learning routes you constantly learning uh, something then the more you learn the more you specialize in your own field mm. what whatever the field is the, the more you can give back to humanity and uh, you know be recognized for it mm. and reminds me of uh, hadith which is the tradition of the holy prophet uh, peace and blessings of allah be upon him um uh, which is uh, to, uh, along the lines of uh, wisdom is the lost property of a believer So you're absolutely right you know this is something that uh, acquisition of knowledge is something which is very central to Islamic belief we shall continue this discussion we are now coming up to the 8 o'clock news when we come back we will talk more about um, how important the educa- the acquisition of knowledge in Islam is 
8 o'clock news is next you're listening to the voice of islam radio broadcasting on dab via the internet 24 hours a day Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you welcome back to this live edition of the breakfast show we are talking this morning about um, some ground some ground breaking cancer treatment and uh, before we went on to the news break we we actually started off the segment by talking to professor richard simcock who is um, a clinical a uh, consultant oncologist at the Sussex uh, Cancer Center and he was uh, telling us about uh, some of this um, groundbreaking research but in the uh, in the past few minutes we've been talking about and and before going on to the news break we were actually talking about how important research is within Islam and how important acquisition of knowledge is in an Islamic society and uh, we thought it was important to talk about that because this is the lazy stereotype which is actually hurled um, at against Islam we are now joined uh, by um, by a live uh, caller mr salim rahim let's uh, listen to what uh, mr rahim has to say assalam alaikum peace be with you thank you for joining us walaikum assalam yes so a very interesting the topic actually this is just off the cuff I'm uh, speaking I had another topic I wanted to discuss about cancer just a very brief one from me I used to work at the regulatory agency for United Kingdom for many years mm-hmm. and I don't want to go into a big story here but just to go in a very brief summary end of the day positive mind body and soul that's all was needed you don't have to eat anything take anything imagine you're having a cure whatever positive mind body and soul over most things things are created by human beings they then push it out in media they make a big hoo ha people get used to it they get addicted they think oh i've got this ailment now that ailment because they get really bogged down by a particular issue and then they start using other human beings to try and cure them positive mind body and soul is the solution that's number 1 for cancer okay number 2 my brother i need your advice and a lot of people's advice on the who are listening i'm having a bug there right now is how to promote hygienically and sustainably using water when you use the laboratory facilities i apologize this is a very sensitive subject but maybe we'll have to can take this as a topic for another one and um what i need is how i can formulate to dis- uh, to discuss with people that for everybody when you use a laboratory facilities there needs to be a water facility available hygienically for you to be able to clean because it's that in tune with nature and that's what i i wanted to just leave as a a, a thought for the day sure absolutely you know that uh, uh, that's well taken thank you very much for joining us uh, mr sahim rahim and thank you for those thoughts as well and i uh, and i agree I, uh, it's it's all about positivity it's all about um, having a positive mindset and that's very very important um, i would uh, i would say that you know you've got to have a holistic approach and you've got to um uh, you've got to have uh, uh, the necessary treatment if you if you do 
um, if you do get unwell. But uh, yeah, at the at the heart of everything uh, is uh, is is positive uh, mindset and and a positive uh, good healthy lifestyle, including exercise. Um, right. Uh, coming back to the uh, to the topic at hand, which is about the acquisition of knowledge. Um, uh, let me now play a small clip, which is from an address given by Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, who is the current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah be his helper. He delivered this address uh, at UNESCO in October 2019. Let's listen in to what he had to say. Allegation leveled against Islam by certain critics is that it is a backward and archaic religion or one that does not promote intellectual advancement. This is a lazy stereotype that is based on fiction rather than fact. <clears throat> it is a baseless allegation. The Holy Quran itself has signified the importance of education by teaching the prayer, the Oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Where this prayer is a source of great help to Muslims, it also inspires them towards learning and advancing the cause of human knowledge. The truth is that the Holy Quran and the teachings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, inspired the works of generations of Muslims, intellectuals, philosophers, and inventors in the Middle Ages. Indeed, if we look back more than a million millennium, we see how Muslims, scientists, and inventors played a fundamental role in advancing knowledge and developing technologies which transformed the world and remain in use today. For example, the first ever camera was developed by Ibn Hatham and his revolutionary work was recognized by UNESCO when he was declared as pioneer of modern optics. It is also interesting to note that the word camera is derived from the Arabic word kamara. In the 12th century, a Muslim cartographer produced most extensive, extensive and accurate world map of the medieval times, which was used for centuries by travelers. Furthermore, in the field of medicine, many Muslim physicians and scientists made great discoveries and pioneered many inventions that remain in use today. Many of the surgical instruments were pioneered by Muslim physicians. Uh, by Muslim physician Al-Zahrawi in the 10th century. In the 17th century, an English physician, William Harvey, famously carried out what was considered as groundbreaking research regarding blood circulation and the functioning of the heart. However, it was later discovered that more than 400 years before, before Harvey's research, Ibn Nafis, an Arab physician, 
had already detailed the basic of pulmonary circulation in an Arabic textbook. In the 9th century, Jabir ibn Hayyan brought about revolution in the field of chemistry. He invented many of the basic processes and apparatus still in uh, use today. The principle of algebra was first developed by a Muslim as was much of the theory of trigonometry. In the modern world, algorithms are the basis of modern computing technology and they too were first developed by Muslims. The contribution of Muslims to intellectual enlightenment is still recognized. For example, a New York Times article published by their science reporter Dennis Overby mentions the role of Muslims, uh, Muslim polymath Al-Tusi. The author states, Al-Tusi uh, Al published many great works on astronomy, ethics, mathematics, and philosophy, marketing him as one of the great intellectuals of his age. Uh, marking him as one of the great intellectual of his age. <clears throat> he states, Muslims created a society that in the Middle Ages was the scientific center of the world. The Arabic language was synonymous which learning uh, with learning and science for 500 years, a golden age that can, among its credits, for the precursors to modern universities. Hence, from the outset, Islam emphasized the, the immense value of learning and pushing the boundaries of human knowledge. Since it was founded in 1889, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has always promoted education amongst its members. With the grace of Allah, the very first Muslim Nobel laureate was an Ahmadi Muslim, Professor Dr. Abdul Salam, an eminent physicist who was the Nobel Prize, uh, who, who won the Nobel Prize for physics in 1979. Throughout his life, Professor Salam spoke of how Islam and the Holy Quran in particular was the inspiration and guiding light behind his work. In fact, he used to say that there were around 750 verses in the Holy Quran directly related to science and which enhanced our understanding of nature and the universe. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. So that was um, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed, the current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, giving an address at UNESCO on 8th of October 2019 and talking about the importance of, uh, not only the importance of knowledge in Islam, but also the contribution um, that Muslim scientists have uh, have made over the centuries. Um, 
right uh, to conclude this uh, this segment uh, again imam anan if i can ask you to uh, to maybe uh, um, say a few words about again uh, the um, the importance of education as well as um, the importance of prayer uh, in islam uh, yes i thank you um yeah firstly uh, i think his holiness has given a very um concise and composed um um speech about this uh, knowledge uh you ask about prayer there this is one allegation or it's one question the atheists always ask that um if there is a god then why why do we get cancer why is there earthquakes uh, why do people suffer so much and um um i don't know who uh, came up with this answer but a very uh, kind of a counter argument to this um was that um which i remember is um the the fourth caliph hazrat mirza tahir ahmed mehlabi um have mercy on him has mentioned in his book revelation rationality knowledge and truth uh, one of the counter arguments is that if you take god out of the equation uh let's suppose god does not exist um because the atheist doesn't believe that god exists then the question is why is there still suffering in you believe there is no god but they are still suffering so there's only two things here either there is a god who's causing all this suffering or if there is no god then there shouldn't be suffering and the suffering is not happening because of god so that was just one the small point i want to mention regarding um cancer and right. suffering and obviously prayer is something which is Uh, prayer doesn't mean you, you like you put money in a machine and something comes out it means that it it depends on god whether he wants to accept your prayer or not mm. he knows best what is good for you um mm. uh, it is our job to pray it's our job to uh, ask him for help mm. just like when a farmer is is uh, um supplying seeds or supplying seeds, seeds yeah. he, he he doesn't he can't demand from the seed to grow mm. and become mm. a tree Uh, his job is to sow the seed, water yeah. it, take care of it, and then it's God's job to make sure it it flowers and uh, it, it turns into a tree or a flower and flourishes. Correct. Excellent. Thank you very much uh, for that, Imam Aswamanan. And that brings us uh, to the end of uh, this segment, which was about uh, knowledge and acquisition of knowledge, scientific research. And in the beginning of the segment, we talked about uh, targeted cancer treatment and uh, research going on in that field as well. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the segment, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. Um, promptly going on to the second segment, which is about care. So should being in care be a protected characteristic? That is the topic of our second segment. So uh, more than 30 councils in the UK have made experience of the care system a protected characteristic. But Rebecca and Faye have been working on a campaign to make this the law. In this segment, we will discuss the reasons behind this and the lives of children in care. So a group of people who have been in care want to as i said make it illegal to discriminate against them they want to take make the experience of the care system a protected characteristic like disability race um and other things uh fair applied for a job and it appeared that the interview was going well the interview asked questions about her personal life such as where she lived upon responding that she lived in the care home the interviewer appeared to stop the interview Fair was unsuccessful, therefore, in her application for that job. Fair reports of the fact that she was brought up in a care home 
affected the um, the interview or the prospects for that job. Uh, Faye is handing in the petition to number 10, later as part of a group led by campaigner Terry Galloway. They want the Equality Act 2010 uh, to also treat care experience as a protected characteristic so it becomes the law to consider the discrimination faced by those people when making new policies. They say the perception that care home kids are naughty is untrue and actually they're all like um, other children. Uh, Faye also said there's a lot of stereotypes. People think that when you grow up in care, you have no relationship with your parents. Most of the time, people don't. But I've got an absolutely amazing relationship with my grandmother. And one of the things Faye wants to change is some of the pre- preconceptions about people uh, who are in act- who are in care. Rebecca also, like Faye, age 18, says she feels discriminated against in school. She's been working on the petition, which she hopes will have a wider impact and change attitudes to how people are treated at school. We deserve an education, but bullying just makes you think, I don't want to go. She says, I want it to be different, where you don't feel a judgment going to school and you say, I don't want to go to school today because they'll say this. So... um, um, children's uh, homes um, or care in children's uh, home is protected by legislation naming children's home regulations England 2015 uh, in summary it states that in, that uh, ensuring that children's, home, children's homes provide high quality care set high expectations for children and enable them to achieve their full potential as the best homes already are and support innovation in a sector enabling skilled professionals to use their judgment to provide care that meets each child's individual needs. This regulation applies to children's homes, children's homes that provide a short break, um, secure children's homes, residential special schools or boarding schools who accommodate children for more than 295 days per year. Children... um, Children's social care also refers to all forms of personal care for children and young people who need extra support. Good social care opens up opportunities and improves mental health. It has the power to change young people's people's lives. Local authorities um, have a responsibility to ensure that children living in their area are safe and supported to stay well and healthy. Local authorities work with social workers and as of 2022, 80,000 children are living in care in England alone. On top of that, there are about 388,500 children in need of some level of extra support. This includes some children with learning disabilities, children at risk um, uh, of exploitation or harm, um, includes children, young people arriving as, as immigrants without parents. Due to funding cuts to local authorities, they're looking into children's charities to support them in social care. Children and families, particularly those living in poverty, are suffering after funding cuts to local authorities. This means children and young people are more likely to suffer abuse, ne- neglect, exploitation inside and outside the home. Right. So that is um, uh, is is a bit of a perspective around this topic that we want to discuss today. And you all want to open this discussion up um, uh, to all our listeners. Um, so should um, being in care 
be a protected characteristic? That's the question we're asking this morning. The number to call is 020-8687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue this discussion and also talk to a couple of um, guests on this topic. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Very warm welcome uh, back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are in this segment talking about care. And the question we're asking is should being in care be a protected characteristic? Let's now go straight to our first guest uh, for this segment. Terry Galloway, who is a lead campaigner for care experienced to be a protected characteristic. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Terry. So, um, yeah, tell us about um, why you think it this should be a protected characteristic. Yeah, well, it's not just me. Um, the, the children's social care system's quite broken in the UK at the moment. Like my, my personal experience is I, I came through the care system myself. Uh, by the time I'd lived, by the time I'd left care around 16, 17, I'd lived in over 100 places. And it was quite traumatic. And my family didn't really uh, have a good time either in the care system. Um, so um, my sister had children who had her children taken into care. And so did my brother. Uh, he had children that got taken into care. Uh, and eventually, uh, my sister um, was killed by her um, her boyfriend in a domestic violence incident. But previous to that, a few months earlier, uh, we'd been at a funeral for um, one of our friends. And my sister was saying to me at that time that she felt she was going to be next. Um, and at that point, she'd lost the children. She was addicted to drugs and alcohol and and wasn't really in a good place and I spent most of the night trying to persuade her to to kind of come round and, and be positive and and the only thing we could think of was to really promise each other to try and change the care system so that other people didn't experience the same kind of things that we did uh, so that that's where it all started really um, but uh, just last year the independent review of children's social care published a report making recommendations to government that care experience should be a protected characteristic under the Equality Act. Uh, and then the government responded to that report and basically said no. But in between um, the report 
recommendations and the government saying no, I started a campaign across the UK to, to ask councils to actually adopt um, protected characteristic status in, in local councils voluntarily until such time as we got it into legislation. And that's just gone from strength to strength, that campaign. We've now got 34 councils across the UK, which represent around 20% of the population. So that's going really well. Right. So <clears throat> what kind of benefits do you think this uh, legislation can actually bring? Well, with with care experienced people, uh, most of the time when there's an issue with family and children, it gets pushed onto uh, social care. Um, so everyone uh, in, in the state, in the different departments, they, they don't really understand and know about care experienced people and they don't know what we go through. Uh, but they're in the main, they are the, the decision makers. So what a protected characteristic does is it, it means that anybody that's making a decision or creating a policy has to do what's known as an equality impact assessment to see how that policy impacts the people with a protected characteristic. So if care experience was added to that, it would give care experience people a real voice out there across the whole of government and across the whole of local government and businesses. Right. How can education systems, employers, housing services be more supportive? Well, if, if you take education as by way as an example of, of how a protected characteristic would help there, um, most children, well, all children, well, most children in care, when they're looked after under care orders, they get priority for schools. Um, so if so, so you get you know you get these parents buying really expensive houses so they can get near the best schools. So getting into good schools in in the UK is is really kind of priority for for, for most parents. And um, so for children who are in care, they actually get priority to go into schools. Uh, but the problem is, is they only get priority at the time of common application, which means that you have to plan coming into care for like up to 12 months, which just doesn't happen because kids come into care all year round. So when those policies are getting made, if the people that are making them policies did an equality impact assessment, they'd realise that actually kids in care you don't plan to come into care. It just happens, and it happens all year round. So therefore, that priority should exist all year round. Because at the moment, you've got kids, you know, in schools, and they're getting like taxis to school fifty miles away. Um, you know, so for a young child having to get up early, having to explain when they get to school, why they're in a taxi, and so forth. You know, that 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 kind of thing can can stop with protected characteristics. Right. So. Uh you're saying that even after getting admission at a particular school, they they should continue to be given priority and um, uh, and and given extra support uh, in the school setting. Is that what you suggested? Say, say that again. Sorry. So, are are you suggesting that um, after getting admission in a particular school, which they get priority for, children in care should also be getting extra support while being educated at school? Yeah, absolutely. Because that the. the it's really it's about equality of opportunity and equity mm. um, and the, these kids when they come into care they don't come into care because they've been naughty they don't come into mm. into care because they, they're bad people mm. it is it's generally the, the common thing for all these kids is that their parents couldn't look after them and and they don't make that choice to come into care it actually happens to them and and they they should get the, the best possible 
opportunity to you know to to what's to, to education. How how practical is that? Given that you know we live in times of cost cutting and funding cuts to and and uh, schools are uh, and head teachers are uh, crying as we speak. Look, every child that comes into the care system costs the state um, £1.2 million, pound, OK? Mm. Now, if you was to invest early and, and try and um, reduce the barriers that these kids are facing as they're growing up, then all that money later on gets mm. saved, mm. you know? So, so, so there's a massive argument for, for invest to save. But ultimately, from, from a human perspective, it's just about creating an environment where, where these kids have a, have a sense of, of belonging and, and nurture and, and love. Um, and and that, through, through having that, that's how they can get, get over, over their trauma. Because you've got to remember, is most of these kids have been neglected you know, or abused, uh, which is why, why they've, they've come into care in the first place. Thanks, Terry. And has any progress been seen from the local councils that have accepted care being a predicted characteristic? Yeah, it, it's going brilliant. Like, like I said earlier, we've got 34 councils and, and they're now basically um, doing their equality impact assessments as, as they make policy. But in order to get this into legislation, we really do need to demonstrate the actual impact of, of how this this can happen. So, so I've I've kind of created a few real high impact areas that we can use to, to demonstrate, and that that's going to be around housing and jobs, um, and sufficiency, um, and education, and also transport, uh, which is the policy areas that care, care experience people really suffering. Mm-hmm. And why do you think people are a bit hesitant to, uh, for example, and we have this case with Faye who went to apply for a job and she didn't get it because she was living in a care home. Uh, what do people think about people in care homes and what is the reality? I think it's the stigma. It's like, you know, if, you know, it's like sometimes parents might say to their kids, you know, if you carry on being naughty, I'm going to put you in a children's home. Now, now that kind of resonates right across society it's kind of like these kids have been bad so they've got to go and live in in a children's home so it's just about changing the narrative really and changing the perception uh, because you know some some of these kids that are going through the care system well a lot of them have got so much so much to offer you know if you can just support them it's just like any you know if you've got a family you're going to support your kids and 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 if you've got a family and you don't support your kids what's going to happen to them uh, and that's that's what's happening to these kids who are not not getting supported. Right, excellent. Thank you very much, Terry Galloway, for joining us this morning. Uh, this was very valuable. Have a lovely day. Peace be with you. Yeah, peace be with you too. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. So that was Terry Galloway, who is the lead campaigner for Care Experienced to be a protected characteristic. Uh, he's the co-founder for Care Experienced. Let me now go to uh, straight to our next guest for this segment, Laura Pasternak, who is. Um, uh, from who cares scotland uh, in is uh, who cares scotland is scotland's only national independent membership organization for care experienced people assalamu alaikum peace be with you a very warm welcome to the breakfast show thank you thanks for having me thank you very much for joining us lawyer so uh, tell us first of all a little bit about who cares scotland thanks so who cares scotland is is scotland's as you said uh, only national independent membership organization for care experienced people and our mission is to secure a lifetime of love equality and respect 
for care experience people from all backgrounds. And, and we believe that should mean that you're protected because of your multiple identities. So, for example, if you're care experienced and Muslim, you should be protected for both characteristics and how they interact. So, for example, you should have your right to pray when being looked after in a children's home. Um, we currently have over 4,000 members and at the heart of our work are the rights of care experienced people. So we provide independent, relationship-based and advocacy, which means we help care experienced people know about their rights and help them have a say in decisions that are being made which affect their rights. Um, we also have a helpline offer, which provides advocacy for older members. And then we provide a range of participation and connection opportunities for care experienced people across Scotland. And that creates a sense of belonging and connection. Uh, while having the option of taking part in collective advocacy to influence uh, wider decisions, laws, policies, etc., that affect their lives. Um, so, yeah, we work with corporate parents and uh, various communities to challenge stigma faced by care experienced people. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do that to build on the aspirations of the promise, which was the outcome of the independent care review in Scotland from 2020, to help secure positive change. Mm -hmm. And uh, what role? Um, does the government play in supporting young people for care? So governments can, can, can do lots to support young people from care. Um, we believe they can promote equality by upholding their legal duties, by making lifelong rights stronger through providing independent advocacy for any care experienced person who needs it, for, through providing public education about care experience, and legal protection so that everyday decisions that are being made by governments are grounded in care experienced people's rights. Um, and we also believe that they should listen to care reviews and fully implement their findings. So for example, that the Promise Scotland sorry, the Promise in Scotland. Um, in Scotland, uh, in terms of um, legal duties, uh, our, our governments are corporate parents, which means that they have um, duties under the Children and Young People Scotland Act to care experienced children, young people and adults up to the age of 26. Although at Who Care Scotland we're calling for that support to be lifelong because the impact of care is lifelong. Even though you leave care, it doesn't leave you. Um, and, and there are lots of different ways that, uh, that corporate parents um, should be supporting their care experienced individuals. Mm -hmm. And how can those individuals that face discrimination due to the care stigma be helped in overcoming these difficulties to prevent them becoming vulnerable members of the society? So I think firstly we need to build stronger communities for everyone by creating more inclusive and caring environments for care experienced people to live in. From our learning from over five decades we know that care experienced people from birth to old age continue to have their rights diluted, infringed or disregarded altogether and our commitment to recording and evidence what we hear from care experienced people reinforces the limited national data available, um, which is showing that care experienced people don't have the same life outcomes as their non-care experienced peers. And we know that they experience stigma and discrimination, which comes from media and literary stereotypes about people in care. Um, so we believe that independent relationships-based advocacy is vital in helping care experienced people overcome discrimination and be able to access their rights on an equal basis to non-care experienced people um, and also that we need to be proactive in thinking about how discrimination and stigma can be tackled from the outset rather than fixing the problem in a reactive way and I think Terry before me might have been speaking a bit about this. Uh, if, if 
care experience was treated as a protected characteristic. So um, that, that was a, a, a decision that, that was made in Falkirk Council last week in Scotland. That could mean that care experience would be considered at the outset of decision making in the same way as other protected characteristics. Um, for example, when equality impact assessments are happening, which if implemented effectively could not only prevent discrimination, but also bring about positive uh, quality of opportunity for care experienced people. And there would be more data and consultation about how decisions would affect them. And, and one young person who, who I, I used to work with actually commented on the motion saying it acknowledges our existence. So it's also that kind of um, recognition in, in, in uh, law and policy that we're looking for. Um, and another opportunity in Scotland uh, is for um, us to be thinking about how legally we can ensure that our lifelong rights for care experienced people. Um, there's a plan for there to be a promise bill, which is one opportunity to make sure that care experienced people aren't defined just by their age or when they left care. Um, but also the new human rights bill in Scotland, which is set to make economic and social rights, like the right to work and access social security, um, stronger in law could be for the first time in history a law which mentions care experienced people in human rights legislation and that could ensure that care experienced people alongside other groups ex which experience greater barriers in realising their rights like ethnic minorities for example um, are prioritised and can fully benefit from this new law in Scotland. Mm -hmm. But uh, just like with any like with ethnic minor minorities or with different races um, not everyone is, um, you know, the same. So, uh, do you think everyone in a care home should have the um, facility to uh, benefit from these things, or just like, um, for example, you go there's a to go to a job and they do a background check? Uh, you think they should do a background check, or um, what did you call it, a um, kind of check they do? Is, you think this should be done for the for the people in care? I think uh, I think a, a, a kind of an assessment of need is necessary for any care experienced person, and and that should come that should develop a care plan that should inform a care plan, and the assessment of need should take into account the different characteristics that um, that that care experienced person has, um, and and that might be um, that they would struggle for example to access education because they've got a, a disability um, but also maybe because being care experienced they're on a reduced timetable um, th there, there's, I think there's lots of different um, uh, characteristics that care experienced people share uh, which need to be taken into account when thinking about right how can we make sure they can access everything that they should be able to access um, on an equal basis to somebody who's not care experienced um, so yeah, I definitely think there needs to be um, consideration of of all the different um, uh, characteristics, and not just individually, but how they interact. Um, because, like I was saying earlier, you know, if if you're in a children's home, um, but you also are Muslim and you want to to be able to have your right to religion, um, the people that run that care home need to be thinking about right: is there a, a a space that that young person can go to and pray? Do other children in that care home understand? Islam and are, are going to be able to support that young person to 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 um, to, to enjoy their right to religion, um, and and will there be kind mm -hmm. of you know enough awareness around Islam? So 
um, I think it's all really important to be thinking about. Yes, and how can we educate the people, the society, about promoting equality for the for care experienced people? Well, um, we think that yeah, education is vital, and and we have a communities that care a set of programs which educate Scotland about care through awareness raising activity in local areas and the media. And part of that is a whole school approach, uh, which ensures that care experienced children and young people are nurtured and supported in their schools. And we educate entire schools, so right right from the teaching staff um, at senior level to the to the janitors and the cooks about what care experience is and helping them to develop empathy and understanding towards their care experienced pupils. Um, and we also plan to do a public education campaign which will be shaped by care experienced people's voices to tackle the stigma that exists by using reframing techniques in all of our messaging about care, the care system and, and care experienced people. Um, and these techniques can help develop ex- acceptance, understanding, support in homes, schools, communities and workplaces throughout Scotland. So thinking beyond the school. Um, uh, and, and, and for example, we currently have a partnership with John, John Lewis and Waitrose um, and, and we think their um, their advertising has been one way of, of helping um, public education about care experience. Um, so, so yeah, if, if anyone would like to support our work by donating or volunteering or learn more, our website at whocarescotland.org has much more information. Brilliant. Mm. Thank you very much uh, uh, <coughs> for joining us, Laura Pasternak. Uh, really appreciate um, uh, your thoughts, views, and your comments today. Thank you for your contribution to the show, and thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was uh, Laura Pasternak, who is uh, from Who Cares Scotland, uh, talking to us earlier. Right, we shall now take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will close this segment by talking about the importance of equality um, in Islam, uh, uh, what Islam says about discrimination, and the rights of children in, in an Islamic society. Do stay tuned. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. I call to Allah to witness that the Holy Quran is a rare pearl. Its outside is light. And its inside is light, and its above is light, and its below is light. And there is light in every word of it. It is a spiritual garden, whose clustered fruits are within easy reach, and through which streams flow. Every fruit of good fortune is found in it, and every torch is lit from it. Its light has penetrated to my heart, and I could not have acquired it by any other means. And Allah is my witness that if there had been no Qur'an, I would have found no delight in life. I find it that its beauty exceeds that of a hundred thousand Josephs. I incline towards it with a great inclination and drink it into my heart. It has nurtured me as an embryo is nurtured and it has a wonderful effect on my heart. Myself is lost in its beauty. It has been disclosed to me in a vision that the garden of holiness is irrigated by the water of the Holy Quran, which is a surging ocean of the water of life. He who drinks from it comes to life. Indeed, he brings others to life. 
मुझे कौन कहता है दूर है अस्सलाम वालेकुम रहमतुल्लाहि व बरकातहू मे पीस एंड ब्लेसिंग्स ऑफ अल्लाह बी अपॉन यू टुडे इज मंडे द 3rd ऑफ जुलाई 2023 एंड वी टॉकिंग दिस इन दिस पर्टिकुलर सेगमेंट अबाउट द राइट्स ऑफ चिल्ड्रन इन केयर एंड वी आर अबाउट टू टॉक अबाउट द राइट्स ऑफ चिल्ड्रन इन जनरल इन इस्लाम एज़ वेल एज़ हाउ इंपॉर्टेंट इट इज विद इन इस्लामिक सोसाइटी Uh, to have equal rights for all and uh, no discrimination whatsoever. So, Imam Usman, what does Islam say about these two things? Regarding children and and uh, orphans as well, um, I mean, everyone just naturally everyone loves their children. Everyone wants the best for their children. So, um, Islam is no different from that. Um, but there is um, there is very um, there's a lot of. Uh, many verses in the holy quran and many incidents of the holy prophet regarding orphans and people in care um and one of um one of the verses in the holy quran uh something like that that and come not near the property of the orphan except in the best way until he attains his maturity and fulfill the covenant for the covenant shall be questioned about so uh, the the story or the perspective here is that there's a, there's a child there's an orphan um maybe lost their parents or their parents abandoned him and uh, someone has taken care of him uh the holy quran has in, in in this verse also commanded us to take care of the orphans and on top of that he has protected the the, the wealth um the parents have left behind for the orphan because it mentions that Uh, do not come near the property of the orphan except in the best way um besides the everyday incidents of death sudden and accidental happenings among which may be in- included uh, epidemics murders etc leave children orphan hence after having laid down the law about the punishment of murder which leaves orphans in two families in the family of the murderer and that of the murdered person the quran proceeds to give directions about the rights of orphans one of the most important of these is with regard to their property and in the in the commentary of this verse says that the present verse clearly lays down that the property of orphans is to be handled in such a way that it may increase and produce the best results for them in this is in many other respects the teaching of islam is clearly superior to that of other religions in no other religious system has such detailed instructions been given to safeguard the property of orphans as are given by islam the present verse institutes as it were a general court of wards a, depend, a, a department designed for the protection of the property of orphaned minors it is generally considered to be a western institution but it was conceived and brought into being by islam no less than um 14 centuries ago um and here's all the word the arabic word used is ahad which means a covenant um uh, the covenant which will be asked about this also means an obligation and it has been used here in the same sense to emphasize the fact that taking uh, proper care of orphans uh on the property of open orphans constitutes no favor to them but it is a responsibility and a duty to be discharged fully and honestly and orphans are powerless uh, to call their guardians to account if the latter are found to be guilty of fraudulence with regard to their property so god has given their charge the status of a divine covenant 
the breach of which will be severely punished. So th- th- this verse basically it is telling us that taking care of orphans is is a duty, is an obligation, um, which um, if if the government has the strength, it's the duty of the government. So the government is responsible for taking care and making sure they they, they get the best outcomes uh, for the orphans, for the people in care. Um, and and apart from that, there's so many other verses where the Holy Quran mentions that, um, for example, the people in hellfire. One of the reasons they are going to the hell is because they didn't feed the poor people, they didn't feed the orphans, they didn't take care of them. So um, these are things which we can't neglect. We have to take care of uh, such people who need us. Uh, it's not it's not an option. It's it's a duty of a Muslim, and I think of a, every decent human being. There should be. Um, mindful of this and the governments in the UK as well they, they need to um, do their best to help these children many of them I mean all of the people in care homes they uh, they are living without parents um, many of them probably don't have any relatives with them they might be alone um, so it's a very difficult time and they they need all the help they can get um, and they need more help than um, other children as well um, and regarding this, there's another hadith um, related uh, that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, A person who puts a compassionate hand on the head of an orphan boy or a girl, merely for the sake of God, will be rewarded with virtues in exchange of every single hair on the head on which his sympathetic hand was placed. A person who treats an orphan boy or girl with kindness and favor will be with me in paradise, like these two. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, indicated uh, to his two joined fingers so it is the status of looking after an orphan uh, God has given him the glad tiding of paradise and the companions of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him used to strive with each other to look after orphans for they were um, very uh, avaricious to have a place in the feet of the Prophet peace be upon him Right, I think um, it's it's important to uh, to also talk about uh, you know children in care in general because not all of them are orphans actually. So yeah. um, uh, uh, the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that, "O ye people, every one of you is a guardian and a responsible to God Almighty for the people in His care." Uh, what that means is that those in authority are answerable to God Almighty for the treatment of the people in their care. Every person has some authority over others. But he or she also has some duties and responsibilities towards those who are in their care. For example, a religious leader who is to look after the people will be asked about his people. The husband who is to look after the members of his family will be asked about the people of his family. The wife who is to look after the, um, the family and children will be asked about that. Similarly, the servant or the employee will be, uh, will be answerable about all that was given in charge. All such people like teachers, parents, brothers, sisters, employers... Elders should discharge their duties in the best possible manner. Uh, those who look after children should make sure that the children acquire good habits, receive good education, and the best possible outcomes. Um, and that is what uh, an Islamic uh, society calls for. That brings us towards the end of the show today. Thank you very much for joining us, for listening to us uh, uh, today. I must thank um, our producer Faiza Chima as well as our researcher Saira Salia Vajia and Ruksana thank you very much um, uh, to my co-host uh, uh, Imam Usman Minan excellent support from tech uh, as always from Mr. Akib until next Monday Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you